1914, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson on the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bucket and we took a little beans and we caught a bloody British in the town of New Orleans. Fired our guns and the British kept it coming, but there wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. We looked down the river and we see the British come, and there must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum. They stepped so high and they made the bugles ring. We stood behind the cotton bales and didn't say a thing. We fired our guns and the British kept it coming, but there wasn't as many as there was a while ago. Fired once more and they began to run it, and down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Old Hickory said, we're going to take them by surprise. If we didn't fire muskets till we saw them in the eyes. We held the fire till we seen their faces well. Then we opened up the squirrel guns and gave them battle. Can't say hell. Couldn't say hell back then. Could not say it on a number one album like that. They would have executed you immediately. Ran through the bars and they ran through the brussels and they ran through the brick where the rabbit wouldn't go. Ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them. Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. We fired our cannon till the barrel melted down, so we grabbed an alligator and we fought another round. We filled his every cannonball and powdered his behind. And when we touched the powder off, the gator lost his mind. Fired our guns till the British coming, and there wasn't as many as there was a while ago. Fired once more, and they began to run it down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. It's happening, folks. The banks are failing. It's all beginning. The thing we've been waiting for. Oh, the glorious release from these gilded cages that we've constructed in our minds. No, I don't know. Probably not. They'll probably just bail it out. They learned their lesson from 08. They can't keep any pretense that that uh, any of these big con uh, machines, these big co concerns, could ever face liquidation. Because to do that is to just see the whole thing shutter to a halt. We've already seen that, so... They'll just bail them out. Everybody else gets uh, microplastics and, and lead lead water and uh, steadily declining uh, life expectancy. But banks, got to protect those babies. Got to protect them. Got to protect our cute, precious little bankies. Our little banky boys. We love them. Although I think it is interesting how it's the Silicon Valley Bank, right? Because if we've seen... It has really gone away that you could have predicted. And they start raising rates, right? Because that's the only tool that they have to deal with inflation. Even if it doesn't actually address the root cause of inflation, it doesn't matter. All those other things you could do to manage inflation are no longer capacities that the government has. You can't do those things. All it can do is have the Federal Reserve guy press the button to raise rates. That's the only thing we did. Like, that was what the the 70s uh, economic revolution was really about. It was about creating a state that was no longer capable of doing the sort of Keynesian management that the post-war uh, New Deal state did. 
and that was replaced with one that just had the central bank that tried to keep inflation here and unemployment here and just moves the number up and down to get a number somewhere between your goals. That's it. So that's all they go. And as soon as they started doing it, this huge speculative fake money economy that had sprouted up since uh, 2008 and then was supercharged by the bailout at the beginning of COVID, it starts shrinking. And of course, the place that shrinks first is in the most fictitious part, the, the furthest edge of this, which is crypto. So crypto starts having its crises and you get the breakdown of the banks there uh, and, the, and the big uh, exchanges start collapsing. And now it's moved closer to the uh, the font of that investment, which was Silicon Valley. So now we have a literal bank in Silicon Valley with hundreds of billions of dollars in un-FDIC-backed investments now up in smoke. And why? Because they keep raising the rates. Because the cheap money is being bled out of the system. And that means that all of these fictional financial entities are finding their uh, uh, their foundations eroded away. The question is, and the question has always been, how far does it go? And how much are uh, the other elements of government, which, as I said, can't do anything about inflation, but can uh, do things to staunch uh, panics when they emerge and to keep liquidity going, uh, keep people lending, how much are they able to sort of soften the blow and and prevent a free fall? Uh, and I mean, I remember when, uh, when uh, what the fuck is it even called? The, the Sam Bankman fraud thing, FTX, F, FCC, FTB, I literally don't even know the name of the stupid thing. When that thing collapsed, I was like, okay, when's the next shoe going to drop? And it didn't happen then. It didn't happen. Uh, okay, so how long has it been since that thing went went belly up? It was last year, right? So it's been months. And so now we've got a furthering, uh, uh, getting closer to like actual organs of the economy here. So how long before the next shoe drops after this? I don't know, and uh, that's the thing. I'm a I'm a uh, econ moron. I have no idea. People have been telling me for a while this whole thing's going to collapse, and I kept kept waiting for it, and it keeps not happening. Uh, my real suspicion is that it just never comes. Is that you just get this, uh, yeah, this attenuated uh, decline that is now managed by the Fed. Uh, because, yeah, it's obvious that the Fed is trying to uh, induce a recession to bring down wages. But where? how do you prevent a recession from metastasizing if all these things are connected to one another and pulling away one of them triggers domino effects? I don't know. 
Don't know. Uh, it would be very funny, though, if we get, like, a 29-style uh, collapse of the economy, and then our FDR is uh, second-term Grover Cleveland Donald Trump with his insane vision of uh, industrial autarky in America. Uh, but uh, he'll never get that because he doesn't have what FDR did, which was a mass organized working class at his back. All he has is Republican voters. And they're discrete opinions being filtered through a party apparatus that is dominated by the very capital that has no interest in seeing that happen. So we'll probably just get spectacle, carnage, spectacles of carnage to uh, alleviate our sense of pain and disquiet and cognitive dissonance. But yes, if we actually get mega communism out of it, you know, I'll tip the cap, but I'm not holding my breath. So since I have no idea what's going on, I'll just look backward, like Benjamin's angel of history, because that's all I could do. I, I, I don't know anything about this stuff, and I have no uh, agency over it. So I'll just float like a leaf in the breeze and ponder uh, what got us here. That's, that's all I can do. That's all I ever have done. It's probably not enough to... Uh, to stave off the worst, but it's enough to get me through the day. So I've been thinking about uh, the apocalypse. Obviously, it's on everyone's mind. It's in everyone's on everyone's lips, regardless of their political beliefs. The one thing that unifies everybody of any political persuasion is that something is going to bring about some horrifying reckoning. And they, they see the, the rough beast approaching, and they approach it like the bland man and the elephant. Everybody is describing some element of it uh, through their own demographic profile. And, and they're evincing their revulsion at some externalized and sublimated uh, component of their participation in this malfunctioning social machine. And then claiming that is what's going to bring it down. Uh, and everyone is describing some like real phenomenon. Some of them are totally epiphenomenal. Some of them are more central. Uh, but what matters is uh, what they're really doing is expressing their desire, their religious uh, uh, yearning for a break, for a breach with the reality that we find ourselves in, in which we are uh, deracinated, uh, spiritually deadened automatons, uh, and where all we can do is hurl towards an annihilation, hurl towards death, a death that can bring no redemption, that can bring no uh, reconciliation, because we are all eternally alone and separate. 
no matter what religious beliefs, we skill we uh, skin on top of that lived experience. That is the world that we live in, and we want to not live in that anymore. It is, it is hell, and and then death is the final annihilation, uh, the casting into fire that the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses talk about. Because the Jehovah's Witnesses say. You don't go to hell. You don't burn in hell. That's not right. They say you cast into the lake of fire, into the lake of fire. If you throw something in a fire, it doesn't burn forever. It burns up. And I will give the Mazovas witnesses credit on that. Uh, for the most part, their approach to biblical exegesis is very autistic and kind of uh, uh, funny, but uh, that in interpretation of hell, I think, is, is, is for a modern audience much more uh, legible, and I think, spiritually, it makes more sense. Uh, the idea that your soul is going to be eternally burning, eternally anything, goes against the idea that God is eternal. You're not there alongside God, separated eternally. You are either reconciled with God, saved, or you are uh, obliterated. Because God is all, then you are nothing. Now, I don't think that that's how it works, because I think that that uh, straightening of the mandala that Western religion does is, is, a, uh, is further away from the subjective ex reality of life uh, and, and, and the... Uh, subjective phenomenon of death than previous uh, cyclical models are. Uh, but if you're going to premise there's souls that are saved and souls that are damned, then the, the Jehovah's Witness vision of it, I think, is more uh, uh, theolo theolo theologically sound. And by the, by the token, that means that heaven is not hanging around in a halo, driving around a, a cloud car and going to see Hendrix. It is the end of the self. It is the annihilation of the self, but in ecstatic reunion with the Godhead. Now, I think that happens to everybody because we are not separate from them. We are not separate from anything. It is a subjective illusion that death obliterates. That is when the seal is opened. But none of us experience that and get to talk about it. None of us get to live as living beings with that experience. We only live with the fear of the unknown. And that is why we yearn for a collective opening, which is what apocalypse means. It is a revelation of something. It is a curtain being pulled back. That is, we want it collectively because we do not want to experience it alone. Because if we are alone, we are alone with our sins. And we are alone with our failures and our regrets and uh, what we have done in our lives to uh, harm others for our own narrow, illusory benefit. And Without a figure like Christ to intercede on our behalf in that moment, then we will send ourselves away. We will deny our own 
our minds will deny and reject our uh, our relationship to the to God because we will only have the memories of a life lived as an isolated individual, self-grasping, narcissistic, not through any of our own faults, but because that is the that is the life that was bestowed to us by the system that we were born into. So even if we're believers, we fear death. But if it all happened at the same time, if the system fell apart and revealed us to each other as no longer strangers, then even if that was the end, it would be an ecstatic reunion rather than a despairing annihilation. That is what uh, Christianity brought to the world stage. The idea that we could bring about a collective reunion with Christ, with, with the universe, with God. Well, well, this is the important part, being alive. We could make the kingdom of heaven on earth. All we imagine when we imagine, like, what is heaven like? We could live it as our lives on earth, and then when we die, there would literally be nothing to fear because we would not have had a life of regrets and selfishness and violence and and uh, denial. We would have a life of communion and connection and, and fellow feeling and, and advancement. Our personal uh, drive our, our engine of libido would be hooked to a social mechanism that would reinforce our desires and, and, and resonate them across a community rather than have this fundamental contradiction between our, our best interest as an individual and the best interests of people around us. Now, we can make families in the current order and align those things, but we cannot be, extend beyond the family. And psychos like Margaret Thatcher want to turn that into an eternal reality of human life, which is, of course, what you say when you are a archon of the devil. <sighs> when you are hollowed out and filled with the profit motive, when you have surrendered your soul and replaced it with an algorithm. And all of us are now cybernetic in that sense. We have this algorithm, algorithm lodged within us. But we're not all demons. We're not all archons. We're still human beings. We do good and bad in our lives. We struggle to build um, uh, a coherent self that, that allies self-interest with the interests of others. Because that's the only way we can be comfortable. And that's the only way we can imagine ourselves dying without pain and fear. Because if we're in direct physical hostility with people around us, then death to us is always the shadow of being exterminated by someone else, literally like run through with a sword or a machine gun, head cut off by ISIS, something like that. Some nemesis representing our imagined enemy among the rest of humanity will get us. If we're more comfortable though, and we're successful, and we live in a society far from the edges of the violence of its uh, of its maintenance, 
then we fear being alone with our actions. We feel, we feel being alone with what we have done. Either way, death is terrifying. And we are annihilating the earth because the, the, uh, what we have built to accommodate that fear is a machine that doubles down and, in fact, consecrates the individual, uh, personal, narrow Freudian understanding of like satisfaction and, well, and, and comfort and well-being uh, as the only value, and then, and then uses a technological, state, economic, military machine to perpetuate that. But everybody at every level of this is alienated and horrified and, and, and death stalked by this. And they deal with that death stalking in different ways. At the very top of this thing, these psychos are trying to live forever. These, psychos, these psychos who claim to be scientifically minded, who claim, unlike the aristocrats of old who said, I, 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 I killed enough fucking, uh, uh, I killed enough picks to claim this land. You know, like I, I went, I drove down there and I cut the head off of every Magyar I saw it and I made, and I made all their children, my slaves. That's why I get to run this area. Our new gods, our new, uh, aristocratic, uh, Lords, they went on the computer. Good. That is their claim to dominance. That's their claim to Godhood is they went on the computer and did a good job, uh, with the ones and zeros. They have surrendered themselves to an empirical understanding of the world, which should tell them that their dream of immortality or even pseudo-immortality is a fantasy. It cannot be done. It is, it, is a, uh, fan it, is a, it is what we have instead of heaven since we dis extinguished the possibility of building it here on earth. Individual personal subjectivity eternally extended through technology because the only way we can imagine surrendering the self is towards annihilation, which is as good as hell. And thinking about it, even if I'm at the top of the pyramid, is hell. Look at, I hate to talk about this motherfucker, but look at Elon Musk. The guy, yes, he is partially doing everything he's doing because he knows that his uh, scam at Tesla has got a, uh, has a expiration date on it. I think that does motivate a lot of his actions in the last year. And you can make sense of a lot of his weird stuff through the rhythm of knowing that, through the prism of knowing that his entire bet was on self-driving cars and it failed. Now, look at this. This is a perfect example. This guy convinced himself, like all good con artists do, and then convinced the world that we can do self-driving cars. That technology exists to allow me that much closer to my eternal uh, robot, world, robot brain. Because self-driving cars is a necessary link in the chain that gets you to these guys' uh, fantastic uh, fantasized about singularity and he has seen it fail now what does he do does he say oh the 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 foundation of my uh world which was an understanding of the world that i thought was scientific but was actually religious the whole time which means i look past every problem and i uh adhered to everything that validated my worldview and I got the money and power to surround myself with people who would only reflect back to me what I already believed and therefore destroyed the scientific basis of my world and replaced it entirely with a fucking pre-modern religious faith 
I've seen it fail. And we know it's faith because we're confronted with that. He doubled down. Actually, the fault is uh, wokeness on the social media. And I don't have enough en engagements. And I don't have enough posts. All this is is the fear of the reality of death encroaching upon him. Not right. he's going to die in the next even 40 year, 30 years. He's a, he's a very rich white male. He, the, the, the life expectancy is like 90 now. They're, they're, Georgetown in Washington, D.C. has a life expectancy in the 90s. By the way, across the Anacostia River uh, in, in uh, D.C., uh, it is uh, something, it's, I believe, below 50. So you see this, like, equilibrium point where you get to about 50, and then you either have the rest of it taken from you by the exploitation you suffer under capitalism, or you get it extended to your life by the amount of exploitation that you get to enjoy. But the thing is, both ends of this are peopled by socially, uh, by spiritually tormented individuals. And the higher up you get, the more tormented they are. So the Musk isn't going to die anytime soon, but he's going to die. That is as good as dying every day until that happens, because it's all you can think about. Because you can't do anything about it. You cannot fix anything you've done. You cannot climb down, because there is no intercess. Did, did my mic go out? Someone says that I'm muted. There's no one to intercede on your behalf, right? Because you live in a spiritual void. These guys all believe in God, but they call it the simulation because they need to get away from the concept of God, but they still have to they still have to gesture towards what they understand, which is that this world is obviously not everything. That this that there, that, that there is no real material that we are gazing through and processing a subjective experience, and the collection of those is what we are. That there's no real material undergirding that. We know that, but we can't live that way. And the only way out of that boat is we fuck, we get a, a, a car that drives itself, and then we get computers that are people, and then if computers are people, then maybe we can trade and I get to be a computer. But what they're longing for exists in the natural world. They don't have to spend $7 trillion. They don't have to burn the world to get it. It exists in all of us. It's just the biological fact that we are made up of everything else the universe is made up of. And that our death is not a meaningful end of anything. That we are enmeshed in a, a uh, collective conscious endeavor that is objectified as God, but is subjectivized as us. And if you know that, then you can just fucking be a guy. And that goes for everybody. And if you can just be a guy, oh man, my God, maybe we can get rid of exploitation as the basis for human relationships. Maybe we can have a uh, positive sum social world where what's good for me in the very narrowest sense is good for everybody else. That's not going to get rid of sin. It's going to get rid of, rid of people being mean to each other and doing uh, pathologies to one another. We're human beings. We're defined by our traumas, which are all individual. 
and can never really be translated outside of the personal experience. So we're going to bounce against each other and that's going to create sparks. But within a manageable homeostatic relationship that ensures that as long as you're on earth, you'll be around friends. But who will shovel shit? Everybody will shovel shit. If everybody shoveled a little shit, how long would it take to shovel all the shit? Now, you'd have to have some jobs that would accrue around uh, uh, like uh, expertise, and people wouldn't be able to do those for a short period of time, but they would love to do them. It's fulfilling for people. Everybody wants a job where what they do makes them feel good. And, and one of the biggest jokes of capitalism is saying we only have uh, like med medical, especially medical technology uh, uh, advancing because of the profit motive. As though the people who really do medical research do it for profit. No, most people who have huge scientific breakthroughs make almost no money from it. Many of them uh, explicitly deny their ability to make money from it. Like Linus Pauling, the inventor of the... the uh, Smallpox vaccine. No, not smallpox. What is it? Polio vaccine. The guy who synthesized fucking insulin, which now goes for hundreds of dollars a month. Now, there is work that's just not that rewarding, like shoveling shit. But nobody has to do that that long. The reason we imagine that, like, shit shoveling, Grungian uh, waste management and, and, uh, and grunt work has to be a career and lifestyle that dominates you is because we can't imagine people having all that free time. Because if you spread it out amongst enough people, everybody shovels shit for like two hours a week, and they have the rest of the time to live. But we can't have that in the current system, because if you just live, you will eventually destroy yourself or someone else, because you can't just live. This is a machine that puts us all against one another and against ourselves. So you can't have that. Like uh, David Graeber was very good on this. One of the reasons that we didn't get that Keynes' 20-hour work week is because you can't just have people in an alienated capitalist society where everybody is alienated and everybody has access to high technology. This is the real thing. Mass society is a uh, emerges in the early 20th century uh, as a inflection point between the number of people you have and the sophistication of the technology that you're ha that they have access to because that creates a force multiplier for the uh for the exploited half of the human equation that means capital has to play ball to keep the game going and that conflict was what defined the 19th and 20th centuries and we live in the aftermath of the domination and victory of capital but we still have all this technology but anyway at the height of, uh, of the Cold War, you couldn't have a bunch of fucking people working 10 hours. Look at what happened to their kids. Look at what happened. What did all the students do when they didn't have to work in the 60s, 40 hours a week? They became the, they, it, their uh, energy was unorganized and it was based around personal uh, pleasure because they were Americans uh, and that they weren't workers. Uh, but like there was a drive towards uh, justice there. It got, it got, uh, Defeated because it was not connected to the laboring classes as such who were working for a living. And it was that 40-hour work week that kept them there. Because it doesn't just keep you in one place at one time. It organizes your mind around a certain number of tasks that you then carry with you through the rest of your day. And it leaves you depleted at the end of the experience. 
spiritually, physically depleted. So you are not going to have the energy, the literal energy, to fight like someone who has more time on their hands to. That's why the people who are in the streets first are almost always students, uh, overproduced elites, uh, or maybe some, sometimes the, uh, uh, the unemployed. And in the 30s, the reason that you had this huge threat to capital that cohered into the New Deal state is because FDR came into office with this mobilized, highly motivated cross-section of people who'd been affected by the Depression. Unemployed workers who now had time on their hands, but also unemployed uh, 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 intellectual workers, uh, students also, and who they, they created structures to reinforce and express their power. Those have all been destroyed. By the way, in France, which is the closest place you see the 60s rebellions connecting youth to labor, it's because the French work uh, factory workers worked less than factory workers anywhere else in the fucking Western uh, Hemisphere or the, the, the NATO, whatever. They weren't even in NATO at that point. You know what I'm talking about. The winners of World War II. There you see the response of the workers to the students' uprising is, we will in solidarity lay down our tools. Whereas in America, even if they did oppose the Vietnam War, like there is a myth that the working class supported the Vietnam War. They did not. If you look at uh, polls, it's consistent throughout the war. The greatest support was in college-educated uh, uh, professionals. They always supported the war the most. Working class people were against Vietnam. But they did not regard the student response to it favorably. They were alienated from it to one degree or another. And you see that by the fact that they didn't fucking join hands at any point. And when it, uh, th that difference expressed itself in the political realm, you had the conflict of 1972 between the new Democratic Party of students and, and, and uh, lifestyle liberals around McGovern and the old crudescent uh, uh, labor movement around... Uh, um, around uh, Hubert Humphrey. And what happens? Working class, the, the, the uh, organized working class in the form of the AFL-CIO, they turned their back on the Democratic Party. They went from having single-handedly funded and organized the Humphrey campaign in 68 and almost getting him elected. By the end of that campaign, the only money coming in for uh, Humphrey was from the AFL-CIO and the uh, Sargento frozen cheese uh, family in Minnesota, who were like his pet uh, local oligarchs, you know, who he had a, a client relationship with. So you got the old, so the old party itself, the organized interests that control the Demo Democratic Party, organized labor through its uh, business-aligned institutions, uh, and local uh, elites who were part of a patronage network that directed money one way uh, and favorable regulation in the other. And they cut the throat of the McGovern campaign. And why? Because they were working for a living. They had a fact, they had a, they had a house to keep, keep up. They had a stake in it too, because they were homeowners. So all these things come together to strangle the hopes of, uh, a challenging capitalism once it gets into real terminal crisis, which happens and starts in the 70s, and which we're still in. The crisis hit in the 70s, 
but the force capable of challenging for power, the organized working class globally, had been defeated. And with it, this is where this is my big argument that I'm trying to flesh out in other things. I'm starting to write again. I want to write about this, uh, and I want. I also want to do another uh, history series soon about the Spanish Civil War. It won't be as long as Hell, of, Hell on Earth. Uh, it'll, but it'll be written like Hell on Earth was. Uh, I don't know if Chris is, and I are going to do it. It depends on whether he wants to do one again, because I know he's he did a lot more work on Hell on Earth, and he's uh, he's tuckered out. So we'll see. But I'm going to start working on it soon. But the argument is, is that we had the Battle of Armageddon. We fought the Battle of Armageddon on in Earth. When we think of the Battle of Armageddon as the final conflict between uh, Christianity as an expression of our collective union, like the, the, the real divine truth that uh, underlie every religious tradition. I'm, ta- I'm sorry. They all spring from this reality. They're all attempts, culturally specific, geographically fixed, attempts to describe the truth of universal human uh, uh, brotherhood. And, uh, God as, as a uh, universal encompassing that we are components of. That's Because that is the deepest expression of what it is to be alive on, the, on Earth. Over time, alienation drives us away from one another and buries this reality, but it is the fundamental truth of all religions. And every religious tradition comes from some specific person whose brain had the right structure to uh, receive a signal and transmit it. Not perfectly, because they can't, we're individuals, we cannot hold it all. Even, even our prophets can't hold it all. So we hold what we can, and then we express it. Everyone's trying to do that. All prophets try to do that. How good you are at it is how much you're able to communicate by your presence and the words you choose. Charisma, in other words. A guy like Christ is this charismatic being who looks around his social condition, which is, I'm a member of a tribe, the Jews, bound together by a book and a belief in one God. Unlike all the other people around us and who dominate us, who believe that there's uh, basically as many gods as there are peoples, and they all just fight against one another all the time. And the best, and the, the one that's stronger wins. This is the Hobbesian state of nature, the closest we've ever seen, really. And, and it's expressed in, uh, uh, it's not a Hobbesian state of nature because it's actually a decline from a previous human model uh, of interdependence and, and uh, s- spiritual consciousness that declines over time as fixed uh, agricultural society dominates. So you can't really call it uh, uh, a a natural state. But Hobbes is describing a certain state. And what that is, is uh, being at the ass end of Eurasia, uh, the part where you had a huge early explosion of humanity and then a collapse of the biome. So you got a lot of people living on relatively... uh, uh, scarce resources. You're living in fucking river valleys surrounded by deserts, as opposed to the deeper, thicker concentrations of settled peoples farther to the southwest who live among verdant uh, uh, plenty. 
where you have the development of these overlying dom, uh, uh, relatively st- uh, cyclically cyclically stable uh, political uh, uh, organs like empires, and you have a cyclical relationship to our uh, the essential truth that we hold. We're all going to be living dominated under regimes of alienation. That cannot be helped by an individual, so therefore it must be lived with. And the way you live with it is you grasp that we are all part of one experience and that whatever we're living in in this life is some uh, connection to what we had lived previously and that our actions on this life will affect where we end up. But none of it is worth sweating because it's all one thing and it will inevitably be knit together. And if it's inevitably knit together, then you really don't have to worry about anything because why are we afraid of dying? We're afraid of... uh, an inevitable oblivion. No. Inevitable oblivion is experienced subjectively because we can't experience death. It is experienced subjectively as reunion. So we don't have to sweat it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm shoveling shit in this life. Maybe I'll uh, be riding a horse in the next life. And then when it's all over, we could all look back at what happened and laugh. So that's the stable relationship that you have in this verdant reality. But in the ass end of Central Asia, where where what had been uh, uh, fertile fields become fucking deserts, and you still have, though, these well-established agricultural communities that leave a demographic um, footprint that has to be socially related. How is it socially related? By people gaining into tribes, uh, and then fighting it out until uh, an empire is formed, it falls apart, the parts fall, fight each other. And amongst these tribes, one of the most marginal established this written tradition around the idea of a uh, uh, transcendental God that they can be in constant communion with through cooperation with their fucking neighbors as one organ in a way that these... Uh, regimes of imperial dominion in the center do, which is to just reinforce these narrow parochial filial ties, individual families connected root-like to a central nerve, uh, a social engine, uh, but arrayed against each other. You have a social organism, and but it finds itself by the time of Christ Dominated by these fucking pagans, by these the the the, the uh, Romans who who take the uh, red and tooth and claw world of dominion as right over, and stamp it across the entire area, and and stamp the Jews with it too, because the Jews exist as a patron state to the Roman Empire, and as such are subject to it and are influenced by it. And it's not, it's, it's experienced as like a cultural clash, but it is also an imposition of the Roman economic model. And Christ sees this, and how, how can he address his specific political reality? To tell the people, hey, uh, you know the Messiah we keep talking about? That's me. If we all 
accept that I'm the Messiah, then anything we do, if it's fight the Romans to the death, or it's beat the Romans, establish a stable social order, and then live as real brothers within it, because I am now the conduit. You don't have to read the Torah all the, uh, and, and sit with the question. The question has been answered. It's me. Let's go. Because whatever happens, this is the important part, we will all experience it together at the same time. It'll either be a Masada, collective Masada, which is still going to heaven, or it will be building heaven on earth. Now, given the conditions he was facing, it wasn't a bad plan, but it was a long shot and it failed. I do think, I've said this before, I think when Christ showed up before Pilate, he expected himself to be saved by the intercession of God in the form of the, the citizens of the city rising as one. He thought that was going to be the trigger point. But they say, now give us Barabbas. You're actually kind of weird. Because, of course, he's a weird guy. He's, he's a weird guy talking to some weirdos. And so then his sacrifice, okay, this is the point. Because at no point is, is, is Christ not still feeling this connection. Like, he's still wired in. He can't unwire, even as he's being flayed. And I, like, maybe he did live for three more days after, after he got uh, uh, taken off the cross. Because, like, it's not like shooting somebody in the head or, cut, or getting decapitated. You die by asphyxiation when you're up on a cross. You could lose signs of life, be pulled down, and then regain it later. It's totally, especially if you go into some sort of spiritual trance, say. You use breathing to focus your, your consciousness and overcome sensations of, personal, uh, of, of pain and like basically glitch out of existence. And then you can come back into your body. You have been resurrected. They've seen it. Now, it would have stayed, though, a cult, except for the fact that Christianity solved a real social problem for the expanding Roman Empire. As the Roman Empire grabs more and more territory, it starts administering more and more alien polities. And that means that social conflict between parts of the empire build up, like fucking uh, dirt in the engine. And then, of course, you have the fact there's constant churning class co conflict at the very heart of the Roman Empire between the slaves on one hand and, and, the, and the free population, but then also between the landed uh, free population and the landless, the, the, the plebs and the patricians. And this is, this is this churning always, and it needs to be... Uh, uh, dealt with. The Roman Empire for a while deals with it through expansion, like all empires do. It claims more and more territory and buys off social conflict while creating, setting the stage for future conflict. It reaches a point of maximum expansion under Trajan and starts to retract, and you see these cyclical conflicts emerge at the heart of the Roman Empire, and it keeps falling and rising, really, but it, uh, dynastically, the, the polity remains for a while because it was so long enduring, and it's hard to get rid of that thing overnight. That means that the, the, uh, the regime's, the mandate of heaven, the regime's social uh, legitimacy is every day undermined. 
How do you replace that? Christianity is essentially a software patch. And as soon as you get that, as soon as you get the adoption by the Roman Empire of Christianity, and the, this new Christian context for sublimating all of the social conflict within the Roman Empire, as it collapses, then you need some new stanchions, some new social structures. And Christianity does the job, but not by promising, as Christ did, that we would all be redeemed on earth together. We would live in the we would live in heaven on earth. We would live we would build it here, which was the promise of Christianity and why early Christians lived in common in a state of apocalyptic anticipation. Is this good enough? Is this good enough? Is this it? But they were of course competing with a structure that couldn't accommodate that, and they were obliterated. They were driven back into the the social relations that dominated the empire, and then the empire takes that message and says there is. Uh, there is this land, but it is not here, and it will not be experienced by all of us at once. Well, maybe. We'll see. It might happen. But we're not really working towards it so much as waiting for it. And in the meantime, you got to do what you got to do. But we'll all be brought together at the end because early Christianity and into the Middle Ages, we really don't get this reversed until modern evangelical Christianity emerges, which is really self-worship by that point. Uh, it's understood that you don't go to heaven when you die. You are resurrected at the end time, judged and then brought into the bosom of Christ if you follow the rules. So it's, it's, it is apology. It is a promise of social harmony, but uh, on the installment plan, you're going to have to trust us. And the, their ability to, to wield that is determined by their ability to build social legitimacy. Which they do, because when the Roman Empire, uh, even as the Roman Empire is collapsing, Christianity has built such strong structures of social reproduction around in the church that it survives. And it, and it structures the new regimes of control that come up. So once, when anarchy is allayed by the establishment of feudalism from these Germanic warlords, basically... Uh, doing a protection racket on Roman merchants. You have the church to sanctify the entire process and to say, look, we had chaos, now we have order, and it is them to thank. We have priests who will say that. And you've basically just reconsecrated the old Hobbesian pre-Christian social world because you're fighting against each other immediately. But there is still an apocalyptic heart in Christianity that keeps beating. And at times of crisis, it expresses itself spontaneously as this cultural cry, this yawp, this, this, this yearning to escape this prison. And the knowledge that if enough of us did believe, we could do it. If enough of us believed, by God, we could do it. Now, they set about trying to create believers by doing it at the sword. But the whole time, they're making sure that real Christian fellow feeling can never emerge because uh, regimes of labor exploitation, of, uh, of, of serfs working for nobles, rips them away from each other.
So nobody's really working towards Christ. They're working towards themselves already. Already. We don't have the full liberal social self yet, but it's a, it is a fossil in the process that kicks us from one social reality to another. And of course, now the Jews are along, the people who created this fucking thing, and who, because they live, they keep the tribe together, they're able to keep the, the written heart of the thing alive and beating and extend it outward. They become the vent. These are the people responsible. This is why we're not happy. This is why we don't all have Christian institutions, really. This is why we, we, ha we don't have heaven on earth and they're suffering. It's because the fucking Jews, even though what they're doing is trying to preserve what they'd had, which the pagans who got converted to Christianity had never had. And uh, there's an interesting reading of uh, the book of Revelation, that, which is the evangelical Christian's favorite fucking book of the Bible. It, it, ever since the millennium, it's been the one they focus on. Uh, the Left Behind series, all that stuff, is actually written by a Jew, a Jewish Christian, as a warning about what would happen if the religion got consumed by the new influx of former pagan Christians who didn't have a social rooting in Judaism. What would they do to the church? That's why they needed... Armageddon to happen as soon as possible to stop that from happening. And so the very people that John of Patmos was worried about are now the people who are most fetishistically devoted to carrying out the book of Revelation. They are the fucking pagans who never had a, a, a Judeo-Christian thing is bullshit because Judaism, it gives birth to the Christian tradition, but it is also uh, defined by its rupture with it. So you're saying nothing by saying Judeo-Christian. Christian is the pagan world of red and tooth and claw. By this, by this sign of the sword, I conquer. God gives me not because God gives me favor, not because I am a member of a group that has obligations to one another, not that I have uh, uh, carried out His will and fulfilled His uh, His uh, commands of me, but because I fucking won the fight. with this new Christian notion that there's a heaven somewhere that believing in Christ will get you there. And it's divorced from the social reality, but the social, the social reality that, that uh, caused early Christians to start appearing among the pagans, among the slaves, and among the guilty nobles and merchants who were stuck between the two. Merchants first of all. Always merchants first of all. The ones stuck between the land and the palace. They are adhering to it because hey, this I could live this life. If you're if you're if you're an early if you're a uh, a merchant in uh, second century Roman Empire, the Levant, and you're struggling to live and struggling to survive and seeing horrible violence carried out in the name of the sovereign all the time. Uh, you want an escape from that. And if you're a merchant and you're not s s tied into a relationship where you are either working for someone or you are dominating and supervising and controlling another, then you can feel the autonomy to try to build that. And they did. The early Christians did try to live communally. But it was not possible 
competing with self-interest because it is a superior survival machine. But the thing is, we're all on this earth together. We can all fucking cooperate. We can put our heads together. It is not a survival question if we recognize it as such, which is easier to fucking say when you live among plenty, when you live in superabundance, which you don't have where these religions emerge. So when the apocalyptic vision comes to Christianity, as it does at the uh, turn of the millennium, as it does in the 1500s, when the Reformation occurs, uh, it is this swelling yearning to align our understanding, our social understanding, our emotional understanding of what Christ is with the world that we find ourselves living in. And that is all the millenary movements, the Anabaptists, the, the, the fucking Hussites, they're all powered by this. They can only be expressed through social structures, which are dominated by the owning class. So it all gets institutionally captured. And if there's a rebellion to go along with it, it's put down bloodily. And it's eventually extinguished around the 1700s, and that God dies. The God who's going to bring us all together in a supernatural reunion, in, in a huge God just showing up one day and giving everybody a big hug. Like that as a imagined social reality. Like a horizon that we describe to ourselves, imagine in our minds, depict in our art, and reflect back to us aesthetically. We're trying to get that, and and then the the Reformation is a grasp for that. The Thirty Years' War, the, the early modern uh, era, all those revolutions and revolts—it's all grasping towards it, but it's all failing because there has not cohered a working class capable of really controlling technology. They are still at the ass end of this relationship. They are they are uh, geographically and mentally too far from power to do anything other than provide uh, fuel for an inter-ruling class conflict, or rather between one element of the uh, one uh, one element of the ruling class and another, the, the holders of capital and the holders of land. I'm not a repressed believer. I'm a believer. I didn't used to be, but I am now. It's cool. But that dies. And it's replaced by this collective materialism. We think we still have Christianity, but we really don't. Uh, we have this Enlightenment conception that suffuses everything. And which, by the way, the fact that it suffuses everything is exactly what makes all the morons who want to erase the Enlightenment so tedious. They don't, they don't realize time is, moves in one direction and that it builds social realities in one direction. And once you've gotten to that level of abstraction, you can't go back unless you have a, a complete collapse of social conditions and a wiping away of the, of, the, of the board. Now, that is what reactionaries want because they want to die in battle. Like There's two types of, of uh, people under capitalism at the top. And their uh, religions, their worldviews, they might have different vocabularies given time or place. But under, undergirding them is a central difference. One group wants to die in battle, and the other group wants to die in their bed. One group wants to be 
annihilated in righteous combat with a foe. The other group wants to be surrounded by loved ones and told that they were a good person. I should write the Orange Catholic Bible, honestly. I might do that. Um, but the urge doesn't go anywhere. It's the, Christianity is now captured by the ruling power. Christianity means rule by an elite. Because we have to rule in order to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell and all this bullshit. It's all packed up in the church they built. And they own it completely. Uh, because there's no more social reproduction of it. Because the, the uh, relationship between the peasantry the land-based people and their local religious authority has been uh, annihilated one way or the other. It's been alienated. People have been pulled up, tore out, th thrown into the cities where they don't have that relationship. So they cannot reproduce God in a religious sense. But because they are the bottom half, they can imagine it in a physical sense. Like, oh, we can have heaven on earth. Not because Jesus is going to show up, but because we are going to overthrow those who rule us and then treat each other the way we, we want to be treated, which we've learned from the experience of being mutually exploited. And so the continuation of Christianity as it unfolds in an attempt to deal with the, the uh, increasing technological regime of accumulation that overawes life on the planet Uh, the socialist movement, broadly stated, with Marxism as the approximation of a holy book at its heart, because you need a book. It becomes the next phase of a materialized Christianity that has given up on the hope of going to heaven because it can't believe that that world exists anymore because they can't feel it, they can't taste it. They now live in their head in a way that they didn't before. But we can come together because we believe in each other enough, we love each other enough, and what is love but not an expression of this very thing that we're trying to embody? And in that love, we can overthrow these people, destroy their old gods, uh, and build on earth uh, a life that will allow us, even if we don't believe there's anything after death but a big black curtain, allow us to die easily, allow us to, allow us to live and then die peacefully. Now, again, there's still going to be people who want to die in battle, but that can be socially productive. That urge can be sublimated into something productive if you're surrounded by uh, a positive social feedback loop. And so that is how you get a society where you've knitted together all these seemingly deep, like, this is human nature contradictions. You can knit them all together, but only if you collectively, as a working class, seize control of this machinery and the 20th century and the 19th and 20th century from 18, I would say 18, uh, 1789. Yes. 1789 to 1945 is Armageddon. It is a series of battles between Christianity, which is actually Satanism, the worship of the self against Christianity, the, the socially embedded religious tradition coming from the bottom. No, I not, some, some people say 91, not 91, because as soon as the Yanks get the bomb, the war is over. It's just a question of how long it will take 
for the armistice to be signed. And it took until 1991. But as soon as the Yankees have the nukes, it's over because this is a real battle. This is not a war of positions. I think this is how you have to understand this. This is a life and death, blood fight. This is a literal holy war. And it's fought everywhere. And after 1945, they keep fighting it, but they keep they start fighting it outside of Europe, outside of Asia, spread it out and, and, and dominate the rest of the world and capitalize the rest of the world. But because those uh, countries, those parts of the world are not united, not knitted together, have no activated working class, their response to this is wholly asymmetrical and they are in peace defeated. Except for the Chinese, who come a little late to the party because they've had this dominating uh, imperial structure and the cyclical spiritual relationship. But by the 19th century, that starts coming under uh, pressure too. And first you get the Taiping Revolution, an attempt to bring Christianity to the fore and use the Christian millennium to get people to act. But by 1945, that's gone too. That's been extinguished by a, a, a century of, of conflict. And it's replaced by uh, by communism, another European import, another teleological import, because you have to have a straightening of the manala to, in the modern context, direct social forces. But the late 19th and early 20th century is when the real battle begins, because you have organized working class in, the, Ameri in the, the cities of the West, politically ex expressive, mobilized to one degree or another, in the sh on the shop floor, at the ballot box, and uh, on the military parade ground, to one degree or another, throughout Western Europe and the United States. They're in conflict with the state, in every case. Some places it's more violent than others. The U.S., very violent. The, the most violent. of uh, Outside of South America, of course, which is just America, but, uh, you know... Because there was less of a, uh, a European settlement and the more of a, uh, a maintaining a domination over fixed colonial agricultural relationships that are not really overturned, uh, it, it expresses itself more violently. But it's violent everywhere. And that violence gets to a point where these capitalist states start having to reform around the turn of the century and allow for mass politics. But, but this gives the mass access to technologies like oh now oh now workers can make their own militias and have the same guns that uh that the uh army has they can use the technology like the printing press and later radio to reach people that they can uh, use uh, social mechanisms of organization like the labor union and the, and the political party to express their interest this is a conflict. This is stress. That stress has to go somewhere. So it goes out to the empire. We can solve this problem at the center by soothing it with colonial exploitation. And it works for a while, but eventually, once you have enough comp competition and the latecomers like Germany show up at the trough, that's the important thing. You've got countries like Germany emerging on the world scene late because they came together as single polities late and coming to the to try to solve their social problems with the same colonial ex uh expansion that the other ones had, they come into conflict over those things, you have a global war that is 
the expression of this sublimated class war at the center of capitalism. And this should have emerged, all of the leading socialists thought it would, uh, once the, because first you have the attempt to have the working class parties and uh, unions of Europe uh, refuse to go to war. But of course that fails because while they haven't built up, they haven't built up long enough or durably enough to make that challenge. The time isn't right yet. The, mo the, the degree of militancy doesn't meet the moment. Because it's one thing to fight a war of positions in peacetime, but when it's, hey, there's a war, we're going to fight the other powers of Europe. That raises the stakes very fast. And the state is able to match that bet in a way that the labor-based civil society can't. And so they folded their hand. Where didn't they fold their hand? In the United States and in Russia, the farthest, the places where the working class was farthest from power, but for two different reasons. In America, because we developed this frontier of free real estate, we had this yeoman society that had abolished the the uh, the peasant relationship. And then we have Russia, which has never got developed. They had the nineteenth century, they had the twentieth century dropped on their doorstep in nineteen hundred on, on on a feudal doorstep. They are almost completely defined by the peasant relationship. Either way, uh, socialism, the, the, the creation of a socialist machine, is absent because that working class engine is, is uh, much weaker. So their stakes are lower. They can say no to the war. You're closer to power, you feel more responsibility. Well, if we're the German Social Democrats and we don't vote for war credits, they're going to kick us out of power because the people are also nationalistic. Well, shouldn't we stay in power? Isn't that better than giving up these controls? Yes. And then they do it, and there you go. It's over. Then the war ends with revolutions, with re real social conflict in almost all these countries, which was inevitably going to happen because there had to be, it was going to return to the metropole and to the countries that lost, it was going to return harder. And it did. The thing is, the country that lost World War I, the worst, was Russia. They lost so bad that they were effectively out of the war uh, a year early. Because their, because their working class was so uh, feeble, so was their bourgeois. So they couldn't make a bourgeois revolution. They could try, and they had a thin veneer, veneer, uh, veneer of one. But it could not hold power, which is why the Bolsheviks were correct to rise in October. There was no, what, what everybody else thought, the Mensheviks and the SRs thought is, uh, we'll, let, we'll let them cook. But the thing is, they were not going to cook. They were going to be overthrown by the military because the bourgeois was not strong enough to do it. But the thing that got them going out, out and seizing was not just that, the tactical thing, because the tactics only get you so far. The Bolsheviks were religious believers. They believed in this extension of the cosmic conflict between good and evil that is going to be resolved at Armageddon. The, the, the thing that fueled Christian eschatology, the, the, the heart in the heartless world that Marx talks about when he talks about religion. But the thing that made them Bolsheviks in the first place and able to recognize the moment and able to act so decisively is because they thought, we're going to trigger a world revolution that is going to, even if we die fighting, we will die building something. We will not surrender to capitalism, which means we will die together, either in par either paradise we've built on earth or a paradise of action where we are building something.
Marx is Luther, Sock Dems is Lutherans, Bolsheviks is Calvinists, Anarchists is Anabaptists. Ah, perfect. This is all very facile, but I think it is true and meaningful to point out because God didn't go away. And it's just not, God isn't where the language of God is. That's what I mean. Because the working class was defeated in 1945, and the institutions that would have propelled working class towards a conflict with capital in the 70s, which was which is what happened, where it becomes a world system, becomes self-enclosed, it can no longer expand outward, and therefore will begin to eat itself. The thing that happened with Trajan, the thing that happened with uh, the Ottomans, the thing that's now happening to the United States. And we have these, we had institutions that could uh, articulate a social vision of, uh, of apocalypse to go with the religious fire and brimstone nihilistic uh, fantasy of oblivion that uh, Christians believe in. But now that's gone, and we live in, in the world where Satan won the Battle of Armageddon. Now that doesn't mean we're damned, though. That's the beauty part of it. It just means that the uh, world as we know it will never be reconciled to us. But we will all, as people, be reconciled. Uh, maybe I'll talk about this next week, but this is the gist of what I'm trying to talk about. I, I, I want to get this across. Oy. Stay free, people. Bye.